0: This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome back to the podcast. The topic that we're going to talk about today is something that we have had a rash of in the past several months, and that's caustic ingestions, people drinking things that are just absolutely uh, out of this world. Typically, we see a lot of uh, more of the alkali, lye-type ingestions, but we've had uh, people drink things like battery acid and hydrofluoric acid. Um, And the spectrum of patients who present with this problem have ranged from people who have uh, rather profound toxidromes, and a progressed rapidly to death. People who have done just fine, uh, and people who have required uh, rather significant operations. Uh, It's not something we see commonly, but being in a burn center, we do see it uh, with some regularity and perhaps more regularity than a general intensive care unit. But it's still something interesting, and it's something I think that when patients present, that people have to kind of take pause and think, well, what is the right way to approach this patient, how to take care of them? So let's talk a little bit about uh, an update on the management of caustic exposures. According to the American Association of Poison Control Centers, Toxic Exposure Surveillance System, in the year 2004, there were roughly 200,000 exposures to various caustic substances, um, and this is both in household and industrial-type settings, include things such as hydrochloric acid, potassium hydroxide, sodium hydroxide, sulfuric acid, phosphoric acid, as well as many others. Although the most commonly affected areas of the body are things such as the face, the eyes, and the extremities, all reported fatalities really were a result of ingestion. Little controversy exists in patient management following dermal or occlusive exposure, um, but there is a significant amount of um, controversy regarding how we approach patients with caustic ingestion. For patients who've had uh, skin. Uh, involvement with a uh, caustic agent. The treatment is, is pretty straightforward, and that's immediate irrigation with water at the site of exposure. And frequently that magnitude of irrigation is uh, much more than people would typically realize. I would say that a common error that occurs is that uh, somebody will present to, say, an emergency department and somebody will begin to um, irrigate the patient and uh, say if they had a burn on the center of their chest, irrigate with one or two liters of fluid, and typically the irrigation stops once the irrigant fluid begins to run on the floor because now you're making a mess and we know how messes are just uh not a very popular thing in hospitals or hospital emergency departments. Well, the problem with that kind of methodology is that if you take the burn in the center of the chest and it's a very strong acid and you only had one or two liters of fluid, you're not really doing anything significant regarding dilution of the acid. And all you've really done is made the area of caustic exposure larger. Uh, And basically now you're marinating the patient in in the acid or the base. It amazes me that uh, a lot of times, uh, particularly with alkali burns, that we may have to irrigate somebody for hours in a burn unit in order to get their pH down. We think about caustic agents. You know, there's the acids and the alkalis. I think people have uh, the impression that acid burns are worse than alkali burns, uh, and I don't know that I would share that uh, uh, impression. They burn differently, and the biology of all burns is created is not equal. When we think of a thermal burn, the biology of a thermal burn is different than the biology of something like a chemical burn. Uh, I like to tell people, if you imagine somebody who has breast cancer... we know you, you don't need to be a surgical oncologist to recognize that there are different types of breast cancers, and the biology of some breast cancers is more malignant and biologically aggressive than other types. Well, the same is true with burns, and I think chemical burns, at least in my opinion, are certainly more difficult to take care of than somebody who has a flame burn. And Dave Mazingle wrote a paper years ago that actually showed that the morbidity and mortality associated with a chemical burn is greater. ...than a thermal burn. Acids and alkalis are different. Uh, they're not only different in the chemistry. Acids having low pHs and alkali having strong pHs. But they're different in how they damage tissue. Uh, acids create something called a uh, liquefaction... Excuse me. Acids cause something called a coagulative necrosis. And a coagulative basically... Uh, as the tissue denatures, it forms a physical barrier... That, ...that does not allow the acid to continue to penetrate deeper into the tissue... That seems to almost have somewhat of a protective type uh, um, a function because the acid sits on the tissue, it denatures it, and creates a physical barrier, and then the acid cannot continue to go into the tissue. Um, The alkali creates something called liquefaction necrosis. And liquefaction is what it sounds like. It liquefies the tissue. So as it liquefies the tissue, it basically dissolves it and allows the alkali exposed, uh, the ability to be exposed to the deeper tissue. And therefore, it can damage the deeper tissue, liquefies it, gets exposed to the next layer of tissue or the next layer of cells. And so alkali burns are able to create really profound tissue destruction. Um, there's a lot of alkali uh, in the environment. Lye, I think, is the one that people typically, um, th- their minds will wonder to. We see a lot of chemical burns, alkali, particularly in the manufacturing of methamphetamine. One of the uh, component uh, materials is a, a strong base. There's a surgical axiom that the solution for pollution is dilution, and irrigation is the key thing that we need to do here. Um, You want to avoid uh, some of these recommendations that you may get in regards to using neutralizing agents. A lot of, uh, particularly if you're in an occupational environment, if you're using agent A, and say agent A is an acid, and somebody says, well, in order to uh, neutralize the acid, you need to provide compound X. A lot of those neutralization type uh, recommendations have have been really tested more on industrial equipment and not on, actually, uh, on patients. Uh, The other risk of doing that is a lot of these reactions create exothermic reactions, and so... Those of you who may not know what an exothermic reaction is, it's a very basic chemical principle that when you neutralize, say, an acid with a base, it creates a chemical reaction that does neutralize the, the acid, but it also gives up heat. And in doing so, you could actually create a thermal injury to the exposed uh, portion of the body. So not something that you, you want to be doing. Well, let's talk about somebody who drinks acid or base. Uh, obviously, we're concerned about the likelihood of internal injury uh, with the ingestion of an acid or base. And the likelihood and severity of esophageal injury after caustic ingestion is related to several factors. And that includes the pH. Also, the physical state of the ingested acid or alkali, is it a solid, liquid, or gel? As well as the tissue contact time, as obviously the quantity and concentration of the substance ingested. And all this really seems to make a lot of sense. If you imagine that when we talk about whether a particular exposure to a, a flame causes a Partial or full thickness burn, uh, or a particular uh, hot liquid. Things we're looking for are the temperature and the duration of exposure. And certainly in this situation, well, what is the quantity of the material? Did they ingest, you know, 10 milliliters or 100 milliliters? Was it a, a material of pH 2 or a material of pH 4? Was it a a solid or was it a gel or a liquid? Because you can certainly think of the physical properties of something like a gel, which runs very slowly down an esophagus, where something that's very liquid may may run very briskly down the esophagus. Again, thinking like something like a skull burn somebody gets uh, burned by hot water, you know, the water runs off the uh, extremity pretty quickly, but if you have hot, viscous grease, uh, it kind of you know is gooey and gelatinous and kind of has a longer contact time and therefore a longer burn. Now, the pH can be determined uh, in an emergency department by something as simple as litmus paper testing if the product is available. And the key thing there is if it's available. Uh, one of the absolute obscene, ridiculous things that have happened with American medicine with the, the introduction of government intervention is something with point-of-care testing. Litmus paper was something that I learned to use, I think, in eighth-grade science, uh, you know, does a piece of paper turn a particular color? Well, under now uh, all this wonderful, helpful government regulation in healthcare, care, uh, uh, litmus paper is now considered point-of-care testing. And uh, in a lot of hospitals, and ours included, litmus paper has been uh, quickly rushed off to the laboratory uh, to be used by the skilled hands of, of very trained technicians. And in order for our nursing staff and our burn unit to actually use litmus tape paper, we had to do an in-service on litmus paper, do an assessment of their ability to understand the use of litmus paper, and then had to do a skills testing on how to use litmus paper. Now we said the tissue contact time may be influenced by the actual physical state of of the agent because ingested solids are more likely to adhere to say mucous membranes or the GI tract and therefore they have that prolonged contact time. Now when you look at animal models, particularly in a rat model, caustic soda, soda I'm sorry, which is sodium hydroxide, this has been shown to cause esophageal damage after 10 minutes of contact time, and it will cause a surf- esophageal perforation after 120 minutes. Of of contact time. Now, further in this particular animal study, the solution concentration was determined to be the most important predictor of esophageal damage. Uh, Caustic soda concentrations of of 1.83% were sufficient to cause epithelial necrosis, whereas concentrations of 7.33% induced submucosal damage, and concentrations of 14.33% resulted in muscle and adventitial damage And the data for this reference is by Mattis and colleagues uh, in the laryngoscope, year 2006, volume 116, pages 456 to pages 460. When you get typically this kind of granularity of of data, this this kind of specific information, it's not going to be something with an ingestion. Most of the ingestions are not accidental. They're usually intentional in the patient trying to commit suicide. And therefore, they make some of these really bizarre cocktails, uh, or they'll take some sort of household agent. uh, And usually, the material is not brought to the emergency department, or you don't get a nice material safety data sheet like you would in an occupational exposure where somebody has an acid spilled on them in a work type setting. So don't hold your breath that you're going to be getting this kind of, you know, somebody uh, ingested soda and tells you that it's a 7.83% soda. It's statistically a very low probability of occurrence that you're going to get that information. We mentioned that the acids and alkali actually damage tissue differently. Acids cause coagulum necrosis with eschar formation that limits substance penetration, injury depth. Alkalis, in contrast, combine with tissue proteins, and they cause liquefaction necrosis and a saponification and are classically taught to, to uh, penetrate deeper in the tissues. Now, additionally, alkali absorption leads to thrombosis in blood vessels, and impeding blood flow into already damaged tissue, and as you're impeding blood flow in the damaged tissue, uh, it's like a, a burn patient that gets poorly resuscitated. That this this tissue that is vulnerable will then, you know, in a poorly resuscitated circumstance, will then go on to die. Now these mechanisms of injury suggest that alkali ingestion would lead to more serious injury and complications. However, the distinction between acid and alkali burns is probably not clinically relevant in the setting of strong acid, strong base, uh, because both are able to penetrate the esophageal tissues pretty rapidly, and both are potentially able to lead to full thickness damage of the esophageal wall. There's a study by Poli and colleagues Uh, in Gastrointestinal Endoscopy 2004, Volume 60, pages 372 to 377. And in that particular study, uh, strong acid ingestion was actually associated with longer hospital stays, increased incidence of systemic complications such as renal failure, liver dysfunction, and disseminate intravascular coagulation and hemolysis when compared with alkali ingestion. We've recently had a patient who really went down all of that course and basically died uh, a rather rapid death from really that toxidrome of a strong acid. So let's go over those things that you see, uh, complications, renal failure, liver dysfunction, and in our case, liver failure, DIC as well as hemolysis. And hemolysis, I think, these patients typically land on surgical services, and I don't think that hemolysis is something that surgeons typically really have in the forefront of their mind when we think see a low hemoglobin, we think someone is bleeding, because the majority of patients that we care for who will have a rapid decline in their hemoglobin typically is related to blood loss. Um, I think those of us who care for burn patients with some regularity uh, are looking for hemolysis uh, probably more commonly because blood is a thermally labile tissue. And so if you have somebody who is a victim of a a rather... significant structure fire uh, that you can see hemolysis related just to the burn exposure. And here's another circumstance where a uh, ingestion of acid will lead uh, your patients to potentially have hemolysis, and so you need to be mindful of that and certainly um, looking for that. There has been some interesting research that uh, may indicate that the uh, damage to the esophageal tissue is perhaps a little bit more complicated than uh, we think, particularly when we compare it to uh, damage related to skin, uh, and that there may be some oxygen-free radical metabolism that may kind of uh, amplify the tissue injury in a fashion that's unique to the esophagus when comparing it to skin. Now, esophageal injury may begin within minutes after ingestion of a corrosive agent, and it may persist for hours uh, after the ingestion histiologically, uh, what goes on initially is that tissue injury um, is really marked by eosinophilic necrosis and swelling and, and eventually hemorrhagic congestion. About four to seven days after ingestion, you'll begin to see mucosal sloughing and bacterial evasion can occur. Uh, this period, about four to seven days, is also characterized by inflammation and the appearance of of granulation tissue. It's also during this time that ulcers can be covered with uh, can become covered with a, a fibrous type layer. Now Perforation can occur at any time if ulceration exceeds the muscular plane. Fibroblasts also appear at injury sites around day 4. On day 5 roughly you get this esophageal uh, mold is formed uh, and this is soft quote unquote esophageal mold it really consists of dead cells, secretions, and, and possibly food. On around day 10 after ingestion, esophageal repair really Begins to initiate, and finally, at about one month after the ingestion, uh, esophageal ulcerations begin to reepithelialize, and these histological uh, characteristics uh, of the esophagus following caustic ingestion. Well, clinically, how do we go about evaluating these patients and, and what are some of the studies that we might do? Patients who initially will present for medical care following ingestion of a caustic agent, they can have a variety of, of signs and symptoms. Um, many patients will be asymptomatic. Um, others can be complaining of nausea, vomiting, dysphagia, odynophagia. Uh, those of you who, um, there's a lot of people listening to this who are just getting into medicine, and adenophagia is painful swelling. Drooling uh, is always a, a bad sign. Abdominal pain and chest pain are, are very bad signs, and strider is uh, a real red flag that uh, action needs to be taken uh, rather promptly. Uh, there have been some attempts made to kind of correlate the patient's symptoms and physical findings with esophageal injury, but the literature on this topic really has, has not been any kind of slam dunks. It's been inconclusive. There was a study that found the presence of two or more signs or symptoms, including vomiting, drooling, or strider, predicted esophageal injury. Uh, the reference for that... Crane and colleagues uh, in American Journal of Disease and Children, 1984, Volume 138, pages 863 to 865. There was a, a more recent study that suggested that drooling and dysphagia alone uh, correlated with esophageal injury. And a study after that, that found that patients who had more than three signs or symptoms following a corrosive ingestion had increased likelihood of esophageal injury. There is something that you know. Oftentimes, we focus on the positive findings, but also there's some negative findings that are important to consider. And it has been demonstrated that the absence of oral pharyngeal injury does not exclude does not exclude an esophageal or gastric lesion. In one series, there was 12 percent incidence of a grade two esophageal lesion in asymptomatic patients. That's from Gondralalt and colleagues, uh, Journal of Pediatrics, 1983, Volume 71, pages 767 to 770. Rigo and colleagues in Endoscopy 2002 um, uh, reported uh, that um, white blood cell count greater than 20,000, as well as age, strong acid ingestion, the presence of deep esophageal ulcers, or necrosis. The, the predictors of mortality. Let me go through that again uh, because the patient, one of the patients that we just recently had had several of these, and that's white count greater than 20,000, um, age, strong acid, presence of deep esophageal ulcers, or necrosis, and those are predictors of mortality. Now, despite these findings, hemolysis as well as uh, DIC, renal failure, and liver failure have all been reported following caustic of congestion and this suggests really that laboratory studies may be useful in, in guiding some patient management but not necessarily predictive of morbidity and mortality but you know uh, we had a patient who had a presumptive uh, ingestion of battery acid and hydrofluoric acid as well as carbon tetrachloride and that patient obviously the laboratory data was very helpful in helping us manage that patient because the patient really went into a rather rapid progression of both renal failure and liver failure now, adult patients who have signs and symptoms of a perforated viscous, peritonitis, mediastinitis, or hemodynamic instability may require prompt surgical evaluation and intervention. Uh, we recently had a patient who we did an endoscopy. The um, uh, esophagus was really looking very poor. It was, it was rather echomotic. It was gray and black, and there were ulcerations throughout the stomach as well as the distal esophagus. We did a CAT scan um, uh, consulting with one of our surgical endoscopists because we were really kind of concerned about what did the tissue around the esophagus look like, and we found free air. So that was, you know, time to go. Um, You know, don't need much more as far as surgical evaluation um, is required there. But patients, you know, you may need exploratory laparotomy or laparoscopy, um, resection of uh, necrotic tissue, esophagectomy, um, and consideration for delayed clonic interposition in people who have some, you know, those clinical signs and symptoms. Now, patients presenting with abdominal pain, peritoneal finds uh, should have a chest and abdominal radiographs to determine the presence of intraperitoneal air or metastinal air. Be mindful that you know those studies may not be very sensitive for free air. A CAT scan may be more sensitive, but if they're positive, you have your ticket to cut. Now, criteria for emergent surgery have been proposed, and these include the presence of shock or DIC, uh, the need for hemodialysis, the need for hemodialysis, acidosis, and degree of esophageal injury as seen uh, on endoscopy. And the reference for that is uh, Brun and colleagues, the British Journal of Surgery, 1984, volume 71, pages 698 to pages 700. Uh, crucial in the initial evaluation of patients who have had ingested corrosives is the performance of an esophago or EGD. Now, initial endo- endoscopies, when approaching this problem, were rigid in nature, and endos- endoscopy then was associated with an increased incidence of esophageal perforation. So this is something that, you know, when we talk about doing endoscopy in these patients, we're all very much concerned. Nobody wants to harm a patient, and whenever you're doing endoscopy, for any reason, you you know, esophageal perforation is a real concern uh, and consideration. But to not proceed with endoscopy over fears uh, paralyzing your activity of perforation, you have to be mindful that, you know, a lot of those uh, high incidence reports were done with rigid, not flexible uh, esophagoscopy. Now, with flexible EGD, it's been established as a safe and reliable tool for assessing esophageal damage up to 96 hours after caustic ingestion, as long as, you know, the endoscopist is using general insufflation during the procedure. Um, only clinical or radiological suspicion for perforated viscous is a contraindication for EGD. The reference for that is Zagar and colleagues, Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, 1991, Volume 37, Number 2, page 165 to 169. Virtually any injury nowadays has a grading scale to it, and nothing is uh, unique about esophageal injuries. The grades go from 0, uh, 1, 2A, 2B, 3A, and 3B. And uh, but I think this one is rather ease more perhaps easily to, easy to commit to memory than the different injuries a scaling for pancreas or liver trauma. Grade zero is is a normal esophagus. Grade one mucosal edema and hyperemia. The corollary to that would be a first degree burn, and, and it's descriptive of a first degree burn. Um, mucosal edema and hyperemia. You can see where that is is comparative to a first degree burn. Two A and two B. Two A is friability, hemorrhages, erosions, blisters whitish membranes, exudate, and superficial ulcerations. 2B is deep or circumferential ulcerations in addition to 2A lesions. So 2A looks a lot like a second-degree burn. When it's 2B is when it's circumferential. 3A and 3B, 3A is small or scattered areas of necrosis, and 3B is extensive necrosis. We recently had a gentleman who drank a bunch of lye, and he had a, basically the um, distal third of his esophagus, particularly posteriorly, was was black and gray, and so um, uh, and additionally there was elements of two B uh, all around that. Um, so again, that's, that's a pretty extensive esophageal injury, and that um, uh, grading scale is from gastro. Uh, Intestinal Endoscopy 1991. The authors on that are Zargar and Collings. What's the relevance of having such a grading scale? Well, uh, you can go back and characterize some of the injuries. Uh, it makes us be able to communicate. Uh, a surgeon from Vanderbilt can communicate with a surgeon from Duke or from UCLA or for Harborview, for instance, so we can compare like-type injuries. Uh, following a grade 2B stricture, stricture incidence has been reported to be as high as 71%. Grade 3 uh, burn, uh, stricture is as high as 100%. Now, attempts have been made to determine which patients should undergo EGD after corrosive ingestion, and and just by the sound of that is implying that perhaps we can delineate who who definitely mandates a endoscopy and, and who perhaps shouldn't. Now, some authors recommend that all patients have ingested, undergo um, um, a esophageal gastroscopy, uh, and particularly in light that studies have shown that patients who are asymptomatic will still have significant esophageal or gastric injury. Those papers that advocate uh, basically mandatory um, endoscopy are uh, Privitera and colleagues in Pediatric Emergency Care, 1990, Volume 6, pages 176 to 178. Uh, Katska, in Current Treatment uh, Opinions in Gastroenterology, uh, year 2001, volume 4, pages 59 to 66. And then um, Squires and colleagues um, in uh, Journal of Pediatric Gastrointestinal Nutrition, 1996. So these are somewhat kind of going back there in, in time. But the argument made by these authors is that people could have, and and have been demonstrated to have, rather significant esophageal tissue injury in the absence of any overt symptomatology. Now Gupta and colleagues in Journal of Pediatric uh, Gastroenterology and Nutrition in 2001 uh, volume 32, pages 50 to 53, um, took on a, a different um, uh, perspective, and that was a retrospective study, and, and they found that asymptomatic patients who had unintentionally, the key word here is unintentionally ingested a corrosive, were unlikely to have uh, clinically significant esophageal injury. Now, additionally, a retrospective review of children who had ingested, say, something like a hair relaxer, which often contains sodium or lithium hydroxide and may have a pH greater than 11, found that despite the presence of lip and its oral oropharyngeal injury, uh, the patients who underwent EGD, none had greater than a grade 1 esophageal or gastric injury, and none had adverse clinical outcome. Now, these data suggest that the need for endoscopy should be made on clinical case-by-case basis. Typical indications which EGD should be strongly considered include visible posterior pharyngeal burns, stridor, vomiting, chest or abdominal pain, uh, or the inability or outright refusal to drink. Perhaps most notably, patients who have ingested corrosives as a suicide attempt should undergo EGD because these patients often consume larger volumes, and typically they're more corrosive agents as compared to those who have unintentionally ingested corrosives, namely children, and as such, they uh, are at increased risk for esophageal or gastric injury in those who intentionally uh, ingest caustic agents, So they're clear, uh, you know, as we said at the outset is that there's a different biology of some of these injuries. And it would indicate by looking at it from this perspective that a, a, a corrosive ingestion in a child is a much different problem than a corrosive ingestion ingestion in an adult. Uh, Pediatric corrosive ingestions are typically accidental. A lot of this stuff really tastes horrible. So once the child you know, puts a small amount of it in their mouth, they're not going to continue to basically chug down the whole bottle of lye. Uh, whereas an adult uh, who has you know, perhaps a major depressive episode is clearly suicidal, uh, and I've seen this, do an entire bottle of Gatorade filled with acid. Um, and so you would approach those two patients much differently. There's a lot of neat modalities now in endoscopy um, to uh, evaluate um, the mucosal involvement, and particularly uh, neoplasms, uh, endoscopic ultrasound being one of them. Uh, there have been some papers that have looked at the role of endoscopic ultrasound in the evaluation of caustic injuries. The problem is, is that there's not a whole lot of people who have a whole lot of uh, exposure uh, to patients with caustic injuries. It's a reasonably rare occurrence. Um, except it seems around at Vanderbilt lately. We've had about three in two months. Um, but the other thing is, is getting this, these injuries typically occur at night. They occur on the weekend. Uh, it's, quite frankly, difficult. Uh, we've kind of abandoned getting anybody other than ourselves to endoscope these patients. Um, and um, trying to get an endoscopic ultrasound just seems like a, a very difficult thing to get done at present time, maybe perhaps in the future. Uh, we scope our patients rather early, and we actually will pass an endoscopic feeding tube down at the same time. Now, treatment. Uh, activated charcoal administration is commonly used after a variety of overdoses and justins, but really has no role in caustic ingestion. Um, it does. Um, um, it, it really complicates... Um, the endoscopy evaluation, so you can't really evaluate the uh, uh, mucosa, determine whether a patient needs surgical intervention, and charcoal uh, does not absorb uh, caustic agents. There seems to be some argument back and forth in the literature uh, about the use of um, uh, neutralizing agent, and uh, there's some arguments that, uh, particularly in animal studies, that the exothermic reactions, um, does not really um, bear out in, in vitro studies. Nevertheless, there's no data to support the practice in humans, and it's currently not routinely recommended to try to neutralize, say, an acid with a base or a base with an acid. Early on, I commented the solution for pollution is dilution, and clearly uh, pH neutraliza- neutralization by dilution it has been suggested as a possible means for, slowing down or decreasing esophageal injury after caustic ingestion. There has been a study that investigated dilution with milk and water after exposing rat esophagus to 50% sodium hydroxide. The investigators concluded that early dilution with milk or water decreased esophageal injury from alkali exposure. That paper was by Homan and colleagues in Annals of Emergency Medicine, 1994, Volume 24, pages 14 to 20. Though so these studies were done in uh, rats, there really is no human data to support this practice and as such. It's currently not recommended routinely because of concerns over potential emesis, obscuring the endoscopy. Uh, as well as increasing luminal pressure, uh, leading to potential perforation. Other treatments have been suggested immediately following corrosive ingestions. These include enteral or parenteral proton pump inhibitors, H2 blockers. These agents have been used to suppress the reflux of gastric contents back into the esophagus, therefore minimizing esophageal injury. There is one study that found increased gastric injury when H2 blockers were administered immediately following corrosive ingestion. In that particular study, the authors postulated that this increase in gastric injury was a result of stomach acid suppression and decreased caustic neutralization, which led them to recommend starting the treatment at 24 hours after caustic ingestion. To date, however, there's really no clinical uh, trials that demonstrate any efficacy uh, in that practice at all. Perhaps the most commonly... um, Complication after caustic ingestions is the formation of strictures as well as a soft gel malignant transformation. Uh, strictures have been reported to develop about twenty six to fifty five percent of patients who ingest caustic substances. Really early interventions are aimed at preventing or minimizing the complication of strictures. The most common and perhaps the most controversial treatment used to prevent stricture formations are uh, the use of perenal cortical steroids and antibiotics. Uh, cortical steroids are believed to attenuate some of the inflammation and in granulous and fibrous tissue formation uh, following a caustic injury. Reference for that is Jane and colleagues in Emergency Medicine Clinics, North America, 2003, uh, volume 21, pages um, 1117 to 1144. I'm not a big fan of giving steroids or thinking it's a cure for everything that ails you. I think it's used for everything, including the heartbreak of psoriasis. There has been a prospective study that found no benefit from systemic steroid administration in children who had ingested caustic substances, and that development of strictures was related only to the severity of the esophageal injury. That references Anderson and colleagues. The New England Journal of Medicine, 1990, volume 323, pages 637 to 640. There was a, a meta-analysis by Peklova and colleagues. It was in Toxicology Review in 2005. And what the authors found there was that was a meta-analysis of studies published between 1991 to 2004. And the, um, uh, they found that corticosteroids are of no benefit and do not significantly decrease the incidence of strictures after corrosive ingestion, and uh, based on that re- meta-analysis, they recommended the abandonment of the practice of giving cortical steroids after esophageal injury, and I would tend to agree with that. Other investigators have supported uh, the- that conclusion, finding systemic steroid treatment had no benefit effect on esophageal wound healing following caustic esophageal burns. There have been no prospective clinical trials evaluating the utility of antibiotics alone and the value of antibiotics following caustic ingestion without signs of concomitant Infection, such as peritonitis or mediastinitis, is unknown. Despite the thousand-time greater incidence of soft cancer in patients who have ingested caustics over the general population, routine screening is not currently recommended. But I do think that number is kind of cool. That somebody who has a caustic injection uh, has a thousand, a caustic ingestion has a thousand-time greater incidence for the development of soft CA. There are some emerging therapies uh, looking at ways to reduce the incidence of stricture formation. Uh, there has been some theory that uh, reactive oxygen species generated after the uh, caustic ingestion may have a contributory role, and for that, um, there's been some animal studies, particularly with the use of vitamin E, which caused a decrease in collagen synthesis as well as stricture formation. Um, uh, there's also um, uh, uh, Ketofen, which is an H1 blocker and a mast cell stabilizer, when either given orally or intraperitoneally to rats, uh, decreased stricture formation and fibrosis after caustic ingestion. Uh, so there is some uh, interesting stuff coming up in rats, but currently data in humans is lacking, and these treatments really only are experimental at this point in time. Strictures are a real hassle in these patients, uh, and certainly you want to try to prevent and treat them as they occur. Uh, including bougie dilatation, esophageal stent placement, intralesional corticosteroid injection, uh, endoscopic dilatation after stricture formation have all been used. Instrumentation of the esophagus can lead to perforation, especially during days 7 to 21 after ingestion. Uh, And it's at this time the area of the burn is is really the weakest and uh, most likely um, this is where uh, the the necrotic tissue begins to slough at this point in time. Uh, despite this, uh, early prophylactic dilatation with bougies has been shown to be safe and effective at reducing the time to stricture formation. Esophageal stren- stents have also been shown to reduce the incidence of stricture formation as well. Uh, once structures strictures have been uh, formed, patients should require endoscopic balloon dilatation or bougie dilatation. Multiple dilatations may be required long-term for strictures uh, to resolve. However, stable patients may be able to perform uh, dilatation at home, hence eliminating the need for frequent Hospital uh, admissions. Some authors advocate intralesional cortical steroid injections as a way of augmenting uh, stricture dilation. They found that using uh, intralegional steroid injection although technically difficult reduces the number of dilations required for stricture resolution. Now, surgical intervention may be necessary uh, if these treatments fail or the presence of ligament transformation uh, or lengthy or very tight strictures. Surgical options include clonic or small bowel interposition, gastric uh, transposition. Although these procedures are often uh, highly invasive, a minimally invasive technique has been described using thoroscopic or uh, laparoscopic uh, techniques. Um, The real uh, meat-potatoes of these kind of injuries is what happens when you suspect the patient has mediastinitis or gastric perforation. Um, And um, it's time for the operating room, it's time for a a rather large procedure. And uh, when we do this and we find that we've got gastric necrosis or esophageal necrosis, and we're dealing with stage 3B esophageal lesions, the real question is, you know, what do we do with that? And, and esophageal resection, gastrectomy uh, are often necessary uh, in order to breed the dead tissue, treat the perforation, and, and hopefully try to preserve the life of the patient. That concludes uh, the topic uh, of soft, caustic injuries or caustic ingestions. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery at uh, Vanderbilt University School of Medicine, where I'm the director of the Burn Center there. Um, Uh, If you uh, enjoyed the podcast, uh, find these useful, by all means, we'd appreciate you going to the iTunes site and uh, leaving some favorable feedback. We also have uh, started kind of a a Facebook group site uh, for people to kind of exchange ideas, dialogues, uh, post questions. And a lot of times the other listeners uh, to the podcast uh, have answered them. And I think we actually learn more from uh, each other than from, you know, a a single person teaching. Uh, So by all means, check that out as well. Um, Also, uh, there's um, a other podcast, uh, which is Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional. Many people listening are are paramedics or pre-hospital providers. Even if you're not, uh, I think there's reasonably... um, uh, good podcasts over there regarding topics of pharmacology, different vasopressors. Last week, we did a podcast on this site on IV fluids, which was a post from uh, the pharmacology website. And this week, we'll finish up that discussion on part two on IV fluids. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.